0: It's nice to see so many familiar faces. Some of you uh, just came off with a treat. We just spent a few days up north of the city on a wonderful farm with porcupines and corn stalks and um, a very sweet old dog named Jesse. Um, And also, welcome to those of you from out of town. There are people visiting from New York City and from Rhode Island and Florida. So it's nice to see your faces. Um, And let me just say before we continue how wonderful it is um, just to have all of you together and for us to be able to do this together, that we have the safety and the health and the leisure time that we can get together and do this it's no small thing and uh, even in the different spiritual communities that we can come across um, sometimes it's hard to find uh, ways that we can integrate um, practice week in and week out uh, in the context of community but also with um, study and investigation and debate um, without hurting anybody or flying planes into other temples and studios. Um, I hope that for those of you who are new to practice, that over the few weeks that uh, some of you have been coming here now, that if you're new, that you're starting to learn something about formal practice. Sometimes for those of us who, you know, started meditating as kids with no instruction, we get ideas about what meditation is. And it's sometimes helpful to learn some technique um, not just uh, in trying to find some tranquility in our lives, but also learning how to work with our minds and our bodies and our relationships when the going gets tough. And, um, and also for those of you that have a practice and have never really looked closely at any um, original source material, um, there are a lot of sort of book Buddhists and book yogis who we like to read and not practice so much. Um, but for those of you who do practice, um, you know, to be able to study a text um, really helps refine our practice and uh, offer some guidance so that um, as we start to go into um, different layers of our meditation practice and also of our lives, um, that there are people who have uh, mapped out the territory with a lot of clarity and also to remember that these maps are totally useless if you don't practice. They're meant as uh, textbooks or meditation manuals or or internal or relational uh, maps and um, not just as intellectual games or linguistic games uh, which they can easily turn into um, and so often do turn into um, and sometimes in the academic world where The intellectual study of these texts or or the translation of these texts is so divorced from um, what it means to actually sit still. So we've been studying uh, or we started studying the Yoga Sutra, which is a text that was written um, a couple thousand years ago. It's a sort of axial age, iron age text written by a sage named Patanjali that we really don't know much about. Um, and uh, maybe over the next few weeks I will say more about who Patanjali might be or might not have been but we sort of went deep into the second sentence last week and I want to sort of keep going uh, to make the transition between the second line and the third line because this is Patanjali's definition of yoga and in his definition of yoga he's also making a correlation between our discontent or our suffering or our feeling of being unsatisfied or incomplete and the way that the mind tends to identify with the content of consciousness. And uh, this is a really sort of precise moment at the beginning of the text that's worth going into deeply and last week we talked about the four kinds of nirvodaha And so maybe we'll just kind of skim that a little bit just so we're all on the same page, because that all might just sound so confusing. Um, And the spin I want to put on it this week um, is how this relates to uh, our current imbalances in our economy and in the biosphere in 30 minutes. Hmm. So um, there are these books which say chance on the front, And in this book you'll see on... Are they numbered pages? Page four are the first three lines of the Yoga Sutra. And if someone beside you has a book, then just pass your book around so that people can share so that everyone has um, something to look at. Or you could just listen and close your eyes. And uh, there's no smoking in here, but... um, You can relax. So the first line, Atta Yoga Anushasanam, means now in present experience is the entire teaching of yoga. All of yoga is contained in present experience. Um, The second line, Yogash Chitta Vritti Nirodha basically means that yoga is nirodha. And nirodha, to understand it correctly, is the um, cessation, nirodha means uh, to cease, a cessation of our misidentification with the movements of consciousness. Usually it's translated as yoga is the cessation of the fluctuations of the mind. But chitta is not just mind. For those of you who are studying this text deeply, uh, in chapter 4, line 23, Patanjali actually defines how chitta operates, which is really worth pursuing. Um, but because we're not in chapter 4 yet, for our purposes to understand that, that chitta really means consciousness and it's not just mind consciousness it's not just thinking but it's the consciousness of all the senses so it's the eye consciousness nose consciousness ear consciousness that all your sense organs when they meet objects when the eye meets a form consciousness appears so consciousness is kind of like fireworks it's not a stable thing nothing is in this model. Consciousness is just a coming together and coming apart when your sense organs meet sense objects. And in chapter 4 we're going to look at this more deeply. The point is that consciousness is constantly fluctuating. And most of us know this in terms of the mind. That All the time, the mind is picking up on even sounds and creating wonderful stories and theories and commentaries about it. In early Buddhism, the word for this is called papancha, which is a beautiful, punchy word, and it means um, conceptual proliferation. And I think you know what that is, right? (laughs) Right? you hear the streetcar, which leads to a thought about the streetcar, and you know I won't go through the whole thing, but for all of you, there are many concepts that then proliferate all of your associations until you're lost in a kind of virtual, conceptual, linguistic world that has nothing to do with the visceral experiencing of sound. And those of you that, you know, do canoe trips, or spend a lot of time in in silence, you know that when things quiet down, uh, the the stories that we get entangled in about our lives are, are so much less powerful. And one of the real practical pieces of meditation is that we're learning how to watch our experience without constructing a self out of it. So the second sentence means yoga is the cessation of our misidentification with the modifications or the elaborations of consciousness. So to be clear, it's not the cessation of consciousness. It's not the ending of thinking. It's the ending or the process of ending our misidentification with what moves through our lives. It's a mother's cessation of her misidentification with her daughter. That your daughter does not belong to you. Even though we're totally engaged and even though she has come out of our body, you do not own her. And it's your, misident- or your cessation of your misidentification with your ideas about yourself or your pain. <laughs> Most of us, when pain arises, um, we frame it in a story, usually that this is something we don't want, and then we kind of panic. Was that a streetcar? so in a way yoga really is the kind of openness or intimacy we have with life when we're not identified with it and what tends to happen is that most of the time we're constructing a self and then in constructing a self we're constructing a world that's out there because you can't create an inside without having an outside as soon as you've made an inside you make an outside as soon as there's an us, there's a them as soon as there's nationalism, there's an enemy we have the the highest or most acute degree of nationalism when there's an enemy And it's easy to create very strong ideas about ourselves when we have an enemy. That's why we love enemies. We don't like enemies because they're enemies. We hate them. And we hate them so that we can be secure in our stories about ourselves. Because you only create stories of other people to, to ground the self. Does this make sense? Oh, I was going to title this talk um, A Case of Mistaken Identity. (laughs) Because in a way, this is really what suffering is. Dukkha is self. Not the fact that you are a self, but Dukkha, or discontent, is the identification with our identity. But it's not the cessation of your identity. We don't... There's nothing wrong with your identity, and this is what the next line is going to be about. Are we clear about that? We're not trying to get rid of anything. So what is the self composed of? The self is just composed of historical, reactive, repetitive, chronic, known patterns and pretty much anything that's chronic is unconscious Carl Jung has a wonderful saying where he says if something is unconscious it's unconscious in other words if something is outside of your awareness it's really outside of your awareness a lot of times you say oh that's that thing I'm unconscious of well that's not exactly what's meant by unconscious And the way you know something that's unconscious is that you project it and somebody else lets you know about it. (coughs) Because you can't see what's unconscious because it's unconscious. And that's why relationship is really the key to practice because other people are going to let you in on your unconsciousness. Which is why we create enemies because those are the people that are letting us in on the truth. Maybe that's a stretch, but look closely. (laughs) No. Now that I think about my enemies, actually. (laughs) So, I want to offer a kind of reinterpretation of what vrittis are, or what these fluctuations are, let's say, even just in the mind. Because your sense of self is made up of old stories, that we're always reworking. Our identity is not a thing that exists. We all know this now. I mean, one of the interesting things about the Iron Age worldview of yoga and Western philosophy and psychology at this time is we really agree on this point. I mean, psychology completely agrees that our sense of self is a social-cultural construction. And I would argue that it's also a social-cultural-ecological construction construction because our landscape and our water and our skies and our our animals and birds and so on all also influence um, who we are um, completely agree on this point yet because the sense of self is just a, a constructed narrative um, when we experience its construction, what we actually experience is a is a sense of unsatisfactoriness because when you see that your self is a construction the mind doesn't conceptualize it that way the body actually feels it as emptiness and i mean emptiness in the negative sense we feel ungrounded we feel a sense of lack has anybody felt this before? <laughs> and so what the vrittis are, are the vrittis are an attempt to fill that lack. So a lot of these elaborations of the mind are actually an attempt to ground ourselves. Except the self isn't a thing. So it's not groundable. And the best way to ground yourself is with Money. Because the more money you make, the more you feel grounded. (laughs) Another really good way of grounding yourself is Facebook. Thanks to my friend Velcro, I am now on Facebook. And... uh, I actually don't have that many friends. Today I went to Judy Rebick's Facebook page. She has like a couple thousand friends. And then I started to feel so insecure that I actually couldn't ground myself until I had a thousand friends. And then I started to feel like I'm in high school. And the worst part about it is if I scroll through Judy's friends, they're actually people from high school. And then I don't want them as friends because then I would feel the dissatisfaction again that made me start to practice yoga in the first place. (laughs) Um, So there are all kinds of ways where we look outside of ourselves to ground ourselves, and then when we use those external phenomenon to ground ourselves, it actually increases the lack because we're moving in the wrong direction. And this inconveniently fits perfectly with um, the consumerism and advertising in our culture. So from the outside, the sense of lack is actually being reinforced. You see? It's being reinforced. And the lack of community... And the social alienation we feel also reinforces the alienation at the core of the self that is unsolvable. In other words, this emptiness that we feel, that we try and fill, is not fillable because the self doesn't actually exist. So you you, you can't fill it so if we think about yoga as the experience of intimacy the experience of feeling intimately connected with everything it's actually a temporary suspension of the craving that we're caught in of trying to fill ourselves and ground ourselves does this make sense a little bit are there any questions before i keep going because though this might make sense for me I don't know if it might if it if it works for you okay no questions comments. Um. So this is a kind of existential anxiety that we feel in the core of us where whenever we're identified with who and what we are we're always going to feel a kind of underlying hum of anxiety or maybe even like anorexia is a better way of thinking it than anxiety where there's a kind of hollowness that we're trying to fill with this image that if we just get the right weight then everything will be satisfied. But the problem is you can't get the right weight. You can't get the right number of friends. You can't have the right amount of fame. You can't have the right amount of money. You can't have the perfect sexual attractiveness. None of those things will ever ground who you are. And so yoga as a practice of renunciation is not just voluntary voluntary simplicity, like, you know, living easily and lightly, but it's also renouncing the way that we fill up our sense of incompleteness, as opposed to opening to the fact that the self is not groundable. And in opening to the ungroundability of the self... What's left is our eccentricity and our creativity and our spontaneity and our capacity for compassion and equality and a non-hierarchical way of living where we're not superimposing who and what we are on everything around us. Because what happens is, is, if I'm constructing a self then i construct a world out there and in doing so i think that what i need for this self must be what everybody else needs you know and then so i imagine that what you what i want and what i need is exactly what you want and you need and this is not conducive for relationship and the problem is not that you have needs I mean, we all need to recognize our needs. This is very, very healthy. But the problem is the assumption that our wants and our needs are identical. And then our listening shuts down. And then we just see the world through this kind of mirror. Does this happen for anybody? It's like my daily life. I'm describing my daily life. (laughs) Or as Dogen says the 12 hours of the present. Look closely in the 12 hours of the present. And this is what you'll see. Me. I mean, not me. But so you can't get rid of the self. I mean, in a way, isn't this kind of like the fundamental paradox of a postmodern world that the capitalists are trying to prove a self right I mean if you want to get ahead in your career your desire is for fame and to create a persona that you can promote and the the people the spiritual people are trying to get rid of their self and both of these movements are incorrect they're both the wrong way trying to strengthen yourself or get rid of yourself is missing the point. It's not that we're trying to get rid of the ego, it's that we're trying to open up to the ego's emptiness or interconnectedness with everything. And so in a way, if you want a working definition of the ego for the meditator, it's the ego is the illusion of separateness. Not just relationally, but in ourselves. When when we turn our pain into an object, and then we have the illusion of separateness. Or you disown certain parts of yourself. Or you deny certain patterns that you, you can't include in your life. And this is helpful. These are strategies that are really helpful, but they're helpful only temporarily. I mean, sometimes, like, you know, 20 years after you create a strategy of getting rid of something, um, you're still trying to get rid of it. That creates a lot. That's a lot of en- expenditure, energetic expenditure. So, yoga chitta vritti nirodaha. Yoga is the cessation of our misidentification with the movements of consciousness. And now the third line, let's say it together Tada, drashtuhu, svarupe, svarupe avastanam. avastanam. So the third line is Tada. Tada. <laughs> And of course, some of you uh, might know this already, but you know, in uh, the 17th and 18th century in Europe, magicians and street performers would use Sanskrit words in their performances to make them more exotic, and this is one of them. So, tada actually means. Tada! So, tada. Tara drashtuhu svarupe avastanam. So, then, Tara drashtuhu, the seer, the one who sees. So this doesn't mean your eyes. It means the the seer is kind of referring to your whole mind-body, the seer. And this relates to the word that some of you know, darshan, which is philosophy. So in India, they didn't really have the term philosophy. They, they called it um, uh, darshan, which is, is like to see. You know, to look. How to look. Philosophy is, is sort of learning how to see something. So the then the seer, sva, self, rupa, form, avastanam, abides. The dude abides. Is that Jeff Bridges? (laughs) So, ta-da! Then, the self can abide in its very nature. I love this line. So, when you do not misidentify, when you don't identify with everything that comes through your mind, then you can be yourself don't you love the recipe? <laughs> I mean, usually we think of this practice as like, when you actually transcend, then, I mean, when you actually no longer identify with with things, then you, you leave this world and this body and you get a better life and you don't ever have gas again and so on. <laughs> but actually... Patanjali is saying something really, really important here, which is in his definition of yoga, he's saying, and then when you don't continually become attached or try to get away from what's showing up in your life, then you actually abide in your nature. And not in nature, but in your particular nature so that actually chitta is quite personal that, that that the patterns of your mind and body are very unique and that there's a there's such a valuing here for those of you that are um, contemporary postmodern feminists there's such a valuing here of subjectivity that you don't get out of your subjectivity that you actually abide in your nature in your gender in your life as you are but not the self you think you are, but who you are when you forget about yourself. And then when we forget about ourselves, um, intimacy arises. And unlike sort of Mahayana Buddhism, where we say that the, the goal of our practice is compassion, <coughs> Patanjali doesn't really speak that way. In a way, compassion or love is the byproduct of intimacy. We're not cultivating love. Love is a totally impersonal energy that shows up when we're being ourselves. And you know that, don't you? I mean, when you're relaxed in yourself, when you're not trying to take care of other people, when you're not trying to promote who you think you should be, when you're not trying to feed Your feelings of discontent and lack and incompleteness, then you can be yourself, and there's friendliness there and kindness. And then you can be an oddball (laughs) and move to Parkdale. So there's this fundamental realization that Michael Stone is not in here, in here, back here, looking out at you. That actually Michael Stone is the contingency of the experience of this particular moment, in how we create this moment together. But there is no actual John Vega. He doesn't exist as a thing. You see? Pat and Rami and Mike and Sarah and so on, these are not things like ice cubes banging into each other in a a pot, you know, in a glass. But rather, they're experiences that are coming together and coming apart that are happening between us rather than a kind of self in here that's having its private experience and for those of you that were on retreat um, or, or for those of you who weren't on retreat one of the exercises we did on retreat this past weekend was that everyone in the group had to work over a, I think, a, what was it, like a 12 hour period I think on a self portrait six lines or less written except for one person and, um, but your self-portrait could not include time so to write a self-portrait in six lines or less with no reference to yourself in time and it was a really wonderful exercise on how to use language in a way that's not defined by the past or the future so the self wasn't anything and is not becoming something. And, it was, and then you had to perform it. And the point of the performance of it is not some kind of variety show or something. I've tried this exercise where you don't write your self-portrait, but you can just present your, any kind of self-portrait, and then it turns into, like, the dancer dances, and the... Uh, you know? So we all wrote. Yeah. And the worst ones, of course, were, like, was mine. Because, like... I know the trick. (laughs) The point is, though, is that once we're in stillness, so we would practice yoga postures, then sitting in meditation, and that's only part of being human. Another part of being human is expressing ourselves. And when you're not clinging to who you think you are, then your expression of yourself, your art, becomes uh, flow. There's nothing worse than seeing a performer who can't get out of the performance, can't get out of the way. And there's nothing more enjoyable than um, a performance where you forget about it. You're, You're watching a film at the film festival and then you forget about it. And it's just happening. And for those of you who are professional filmmakers or professional writers or professional musicians, you know there's a phase you go through in your career, in your work, where the musician can't hear other people's music because they just sit and critique it. And the filmmaker can't enjoy film anymore because they're just sitting there critiquing it. And the same thing happens in our relationships. When we're too identified with how we think others should behave and our expectations, then we can't enjoy them anymore. We just sit and critique them, usually quietly. (laughs) And then there's like this inner American idol you know, where like someone's doing their, you know, your lover is talking to you and you're like the Paula Abdul or whatever. I'm sure none of this happens around Parkdale, but apparently in other parts of the city there's a lot of this judgment going on. So your practice is not private. Private. And this kind of privacy we create only sets up the conditions for alienation. So, any questions before we finish? Anna? So, um, how is this related to or not related to the idea that a true, quote-unquote, self um, is, is inherently good? Because you talked a little bit about the notion that compassion spontaneity creativity all positive things yes. um, come out of um, uh, you know a more present experience of the self is that then is that is that that's valued yeah yeah there is a valuing in those but also to see that um, you know the terms true self and false self is a kind of modern psychological. Thing. I think, I mean, I don't know if Donald Winnicott was the first person to really express this clearly, but there's this idea of like that you have a true self and a false self. And what that sets up is this kind of dualism where it seems like there's a true version of me and a false version of me. And I would say that the true self is not a positive thing, but rather the absence of something, it's space. For those of you that are on on retreat, we talked about this term in Sanskrit. It's called Akash, which means space. And in Indian philosophy, the definition of space is not a positive thing. It's Akash means the absence of resistance. And so the true self is the absence of resistance. It's spaciousness, but it's not a thing. And I think sometimes in psychotherapeutic language we have this idea that there's like this true self. Like when people talk about trying to be authentic it's like I just get it gets it sounds creepy to me. <laughs> <laughs> because it's like it's still try, it's, there's a striving <laughs> in it like I'm going to be authentic. And then there's like a whole posture change and then it's like you know get me out of there. Like if there was like a party with authentic people, <laughs> imagine what that would look like, a whole room of everybody really trying to be authentic. <laughs> Courtney, did you have your hand up before? I'm sorry. I didn't. Yeah, I forget what I was going to ask I'm just a bit confused about, so going back to this true self if it is sort of spaciousness or an emptiness or acceptance of emptiness but then you also said that it is particular and each person has a particular yeah. style or whatever it is Yeah. so how can you reconcile that without being, it being your identity or coming up with a portrait and not making it fixed or yeah. still being unique or being interconnected yeah yeah that that the the psychophysical cultural um, grooves in all of us are patterns, but they're elastic. They're elastic, they're changing all the time. And sometimes they feel really static, like there's this thing in me that I always seem to come back to. But if we see it using time in a different way, we see that that pattern arises in certain conditions and is absent in other conditions. You know? Like, the way that I most know or identify with who I am is probably mostly through, like, my negative patterns. You know? Those are the ones I keep bumping into again and again and again, year after year after year. So they seem fixed. But on closer inspection they're not there all the time. So the repository or the very deep the laya or the very deep memory the vasanas, the saṃskaras are not fixed in time and space. The, the way I like to think of it a lot is um, waves in the ocean is how I think of karma anyways is you know, when you look at waves in the ocean... I actually learned this with my son. Um, we were on a ferry going to the island, and he wanted to see how long it took for a wave to get from, you know, a hundred yards out to the ferry boat. Because the waves... It was quite strong waves hitting the boat. So he would watch a wave and try and watch the wave come all the way... Have you ever tried to do this? But if you look closely, that's not what happens. What happens is the water goes up and the water goes down. And that actual particle that you think looks like the wave doesn't come closer to the boat. It actually just goes up and down. What actually moves closer to the boat is just a transferring of energy. You see? So to think of your patterns like that, they transfer like the energy in waves from moment to moment to moment. But it's not a static pattern that moves. And in certain conditions, your deepest patterns will show up. Somebody who has, um, you know, someone who's manic. You are not always manic. That's why you're manic, you know. And so, you know, someone who's a perfectionist, you're not always a perfectionist even somebody who has chronic pain, somebody who's lonely, somebody who's sad, somebody who's depressed, you are not always one thing. Yeah. So to really see that the samskaras or these deep, deep patterns are not one thing, even though it really feels like that. And the more you think it's a me, the more... Um, that becomes the tone in how you move through the world.: Good luck.: <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Um, you mentioned, when we were talking about the second sentence, and you just kind of um, mentioned it again, of uh, pain and then later on, suffering. And I just wanted, maybe you could, like in the context of, of that, describe how they're related or not related, and you know, like maybe just expand on that because I, I, I don't know if I uh. well that one can experience pain without being unsatisfied one can experience pain without feeling lack you can open to pain in a way where you don't need to change it I mean how many of you have conflicts in your life that you're not going to resolve this week and how hard it is to open to the pain of that without wanting to figure it out. I mean, you could even say that if the mind is a sense organ, then trying to figure out your problems with your mind is a kind of sensory gratification. And the first thing we do when we feel pain is sensory gratification. We eat, or we put on music, or, you know, we try and uh, give something to the sense organs. And if you see how the mind is a sense organ, then one of the ways the mind tries to do sensory gratification is by creating stories. So if suffering is self constructed out of the citta vrittis, then you can experience pain without suffering. You know, the cliche in the Buddhist world is pain is inevitable and suffering is optional. And pain is inevitable. Um, but the suffering piece is what you're doing with the pain. And I'd say most of the pain we cause ourselves is trying to fill up this emptiness that we feel sometimes. And sometimes our whole character is built to kind of run away from that pain. Of um, the fact that we're nothing. And that nothing is so everything. Everything. When, I, when I'm not filling up that void, instead of it being a vacuum, it becomes like a fountain. Because the entering into emptiness is entering into interdependence. And we're going to talk about that as this deep... We're only in the third sentence. <laughs> so, just to prepare you for next week, the next thing Patanjali is going to do is he's going to list five different kinds of chitvritis. And usually this gets translated to five different movements of your mind that you get caught in. But my interpretation of this is it's actually five strategies in your mind to deal with your um, contingency. And uh, so this is what we'll look at. And I think you can see how this relates to um, our current economic situation. Where we've just pumped billions and billions of dollars into a system that just set up what we just witnessed. And that this system is so tied in to the psychology of dukkha or lack. And um, that this economic system we're in has no mechanism in it to deal with enough is enough. We're trying to fill the lack at a personal level, at a community level, um, at a bank account, an RRSP level. We're trying to fill something that can't actually be filled. And it motivates our greed for money. And until we can start to see our economy in that way, there's no alternative the kind of economic system we have because it's, it's based on this need to fill something and we don't see that not, not, not socially anyways yeah. uh, and my purpose in doing that is um, to promote a new book called Yoga for a World Out of Balance that you should buy right away which is trying to take some of these theories that often get Reduced down to just personal psychological philosophy and to see how this is also descriptive of the social and economic and ecological world that we're living in. That spiritual practice is not something you just do in here. That it's something totally connected to what you do all day, every day, in every action. So this is how we'll keep studying the Yoga Sutra. Let's finish by chanting.